Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Ah, welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb, and I've got a treat for you today. My guest comes from the baseball family that perhaps has the most impressive lineage of them all. Imagine if your grandfather was an all-star player. Imagine now that your father was also an all-star player. Imagine how much fun it would be to go to work with your dad and hang out with the World Series champions and baseball legends. Now imagine that you grow up to become an all-star player yourself in the big leagues, and for that matter, so does your younger brother. Well, it sounds like a fantasy, but my guest today has lived this very remarkable life. He's Major League Baseball's first third-generation player, and he's also a former three-time All-Star, four-time Gold Glover. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, Brett Boone. Brett, how are you? Doing good. How are you doing? Man, I'm great. I'm really excited to have you on because I, I just recently read your book, one of the more interesting baseball books that I've encountered in the last several years. The book is called Home Game, Big League Stories from My Life and Baseball's First Family. Uh, Brett, tell me a little bit about how you decided that you were going to write a book and and really the story that you wanted to tell about your family. Well, I was approached a few years ago, um, and I really, you know, if you'd ask me during my playing days if I'd ever write a book, the answer would be 100% never. Um, you know, and I, I was kind of a, uh, approached by a few people here and there. Nothing, you know, where I was being pressed to write a book or anything. But I just didn't really have a desire, you know. I'm not one to go out and play my career. And then, you know, I see a lot of these retired players write books and, you know, tell all books. And I just don't agree with that. So I, I wanted nothing to do with that side of it. But finally, they came to me, um, Abrams, who was the publisher. And said, "What if we, what if we did a book based on your family? You know, starting with your childhood and your, with your grandpa, and you know, he was the earliest influence on me, and then through your dad's career and through your career and Aaron's career, and then to, to current day. You know, I, I've got a senior in high school getting ready to go to Princeton next year, and you know that that kind of intrigued me. I said, you know, that's that'd be a clean book. It'd be something that's interesting. It kind of gives people a little bit behind the curtain where." Um, you know, I was thinking about it, I'm like, I'm probably the only one that has legit experience from, you know, the Mickey Mantle days through current day um, with, the with you know, my my grandpa and my dad and, and my brother. And, uh, so I, I, I finally agreed to it, and, um, you know, we were off to, I was still pessimistic going into it. Uh, I got a ghostwriter, I knew nothing about writing a book, and uh, kind of taught me the ropes. You know, it was a pretty pretty quick learn but it wasn't that tough of a thing to learn but um we went through it and you know reminiscing it like i said i was pessimistic but as i got into the book and got into my childhood and the childhood stories and talking to my grandfather my grandpa who i was very close with growing up and he was probably my first influence baseball wise and just telling the old stories that he told 10 times at you know thanksgiving <laughs> dinner and but it was kind of cool rehashing that and going through it, you know, just kind of a <clears throat> glimpse of his life. And then, 
you know, and the rest is history. And we got to the end of the book, and I actually read it, read through it, and I thought, you know what, this is pretty good. And I, I was glad that I wrote it. Um, it's an easy read, and it gives you a lot of insight to my life, to my family's life, and gives you some education too. Well, let's look at the Boone family resume. For I know a lot of my listeners are going to know, especially about your dad and about your brother, but. <clears throat> It goes all the way back to your, your, your grandfather, Ray, was a, a two-time All-Star. Your dad, Bob, was a four-time All-Star. And I know at one time he held. Does he still hold the record for most games caught? No. I think, uh, I'm thinking either Pudge or one of the two Pudges, either, either okay. Rodriguez or Fisk. Uh, I think Fisk beat him by one game. Uh, and then I don't know if Yvonne eventually beat him again. Or not, but he, he's been right up there at the top. I'll have to look that up, but I mean, incredible endurance. I mean, your dad had a long career. He was out there catching 140 games a year. One of the unsung uh, great players of the 70s, I always thought. You yourself, of course, three-time All-Star, and, and your brother Aaron uh, made an All-Star team as well. So you've got three generations, and in fact, as you mentioned in the book, a lot of people may not know, you were the first third-generation major leaguer. So you you come from a really you you've got a unique perspective here because you know I was thinking to myself as I was going through the book that I, in my childhood I was I was collecting Pete Rose and Mike Schmidt's baseball cards and you were out taking infield and and, and hanging out with those guys it's you know pretty crazy yeah it's like every kid from my era's fantasy you know well and I'll tell you what I've I've had a blessed life and uh, you know I got to play a long career and do a lot of things a lot of the my fondest memories though are growing up and being a kid you know and and like you mentioned hanging around mike schmidt luzinski and rose and <clears throat> sleeping at pete's house after the game and getting up and just kind of living that life to me at the time uh, it wasn't a big deal it was just kind of normal it's kind of this is what my dad i can go into work with my dad just like my buddy would go to work with his dad right you know? to the office, my dad's office was Veterans Stadium. So I really kind of took it for granted and didn't really appreciate it. But looking back on it, what a special time and, and uh, really cool. It just kind of, you know, it was the beginning of, of the shaping of my life. Some of the photos from your childhood are, are fantastic. You know, you DM me a couple on Twitter and then and then the book, uh, you know, there's a great cover shot uh, on the book of yourself and your brother and your dad and your grandfather. You know, I think my favorite. I think my favorite fact is is that your your grandfather led the American League in RBIs in 1955, and then 46 years later, you do it too. I remember that year I was chasing it in Gramps. He said, "You think you're going to do it?" I said, "No, I'm going to do it." I said, "I'm, I'm definitely going to drive in more runs than you did." <laughs> <laughs> and you did. You got him. But yeah, I just had a lot of a lot of. Just nothing but great memories of Grandpa. He was a great man, and, and uh, you know, like I said, he he was he was my first influence. I mean, he was he was first guy that you know I'd be dragging him out of his bed at five thirty in the morning saying, "Let's go play ball, Grabs." So I can remember that back to well, as early as I can remember, and then I have videos from times I can't remember. So, yeah baseball was in your blood really uh yeah you know the, that 1980 world series season 
and everybody uh, in Philadelphia, of course, remembers uh, remembers that more than fondly. Terrific team uh, that they had that year. Of course, Schmidt, Luzinski, Rose, your dad, Gary Maddox, uh, you know, all the all those Gaboa, all those guys. What are your memories of that? Because you actually played hooky. You mentioned in the book, and you were on hand for the celebration when they when they beat the Royals that year. Yeah, I was. Uh, oh, I remember that year was. No, I just remember those Phillies teams, like you said, Maddox, Trio, and Rose, and you know, Boa, Lazinski. Um, I mean, I just remember those years of coming to the ballpark with my dad. I mean, if, if I asked my dad to go to the ballpark and he told me no, it was like the end of the world for me. And when they finally um, they won the World Series, and then back then they had the parade the next day, I believe. Because I think my parents were going out to celebrate after after the celebration in the clubhouse, and then I think I stayed at Pete's house that night with Pete Junior. We were the same age back then, and uh, stayed the night at his, his his condo he had downtown in Philly. The next day, I remember him waking me up in the morning, screaming at me, "So let's get on, we got to get on the float." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I still see you know if, if there's images or you ever see a video of that parade in '80. Uh, you know, I see myself on the on the float, and, and I laugh. But um, yeah, what an awesome thing to be able to do when you're when you're ten years old uh, to go on a float. And once again, back then it was like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be on the float. <laughs> right. Every everybody oh, does this. You know. Yeah. Everybody gets to do this. You know. <laughs> but uh, special times, special times. Well, you know, one of the things that you mentioned in the book is, uh, of course, everybody that remembers the '80 World Series remembers the play, the pop foul down the in foul territory, you know, in the first base area, and, you know, your, your dad comes over, the ball pops out of his mitt, and Rose makes the makes the save and, and gets the glory for that one. But there's been a little bit of a source of debate between your dad and Pete about that play through the years. Oh, yeah, and they have a good time on it. But, you know, my dad ends up, it pops out of his glove, and Pete's there to catch it. And, you know, my dad tells the stories like, you know... <laughs> Don't give me the Pete Rose crap. He, he's the one. He should have. It was his ball. You know the fact that he wasn't there on time, and and then Pete always, you know, comes back with, well, who caught the ball? <laughs> and then, and they kind of go back and forth. But he he always claims that he shouldn't have been anywhere near that. That should have been Pete's ball the whole way. And for him getting involved, you know, Pete should have been calling him off. But uh, it worked out for him. So let's get into your, to your own career. I, I got to imagine growing up with the the pedigree that you had, for you know, lack of a better way of putting it. Everybody knows that you're the you're the big leaguers kid. Is that something that is you were going through uh, playing little league and into high school and whatever that that you embraced, well, I, or is I that pressure? You know, I didn't feel an ounce of pressure. You know, there were some. Uh, you know, I felt my all the way up through the minor leagues. I felt. Um, you know, a bit of resistance from other people, other teams, you know. It was always, I was always Bob and son growing up. And to me, it was kind of like, screw you, I don't really care who my dad is, you know. But I always kind of had that little bit of resistance, and it didn't bother me one bit. And I didn't feel any pressure. And I remember getting in the minor leagues, and I, I was fortunate I got through the minor leagues pretty quick, got to the big leagues, but I remember... You know, all everybody wanted to talk about when I was in AAA is, you know, first, third generation and the pressure and living up to the. And I just wanted to turn to the, to the press and say, 
why don't you check out what I'm doing? I'm hitting 330 in this league. I don't give a shit about my dad and my grandpa, who I absolutely love and adore and respect what they did. But it seems like back then, because it was a big deal, because uh, it's never been done before, but I didn't want to talk about it. I wanted to talk about me hitting 330 and, and leading the league and doing stuff like that. Yeah, if you're hitting 330, that should be the headline. Yeah. But I had a, kind of a chip on my shoulder about that. But as far as the pressure, uh, didn't feel one ounce of pressure. I put all that pressure on me as far as, you know, not to live up to the family, just to live up to my expectations. So in 87, you're drafted in the 28th round by, by Minnesota. And you go into some detail in the book, you know, to, to say that you were disappointed by that would be an understatement. Right. What were your thoughts at that time as far as signing with Minnesota or making the decision to, to go play ball at USC? Well, I had a full scholarship at USC. And, um, you know, looking back to the, that was the 28th round and it, you know, it wasn't a very significant offer. So the fact that you would even consider it, uh, I wouldn't. But I was more pissed off at where I got picked because, and, and this is another thing about now, I can look back and I laugh at certain times of my life um, just because I was a kid and I was naive and I didn't know. And in 1987, um, you know, if you asked me, I was the greatest player in the history <laughs> of the world. And if I didn't, if you didn't know that, just ask me and I'll tell you and everybody else wherever we are. And that's just the way I was. I was just as self-assured as you could possibly be. And I just couldn't fathom in my mind how I could be picked in the 28th round, how I could not be at the top rounds. And, um, you know, looking back on it, it's the greatest thing that ever happened to me, me having the opportunity to go to college, not only, you know, and the most important part for me was to mature as a man, to to, you know, not only physically, but to get out in the world and not be, you know, at mommy's house and have to fend for myself and get to class and be responsible and, right. and uh, do my own laundry occasionally. My mom will argue that. She she was pretty good at taking care of me up there. But uh, it, it was important for me. You know, I think there are certain kids and, and a very, very select few that are ready to go into professional baseball when they're 18 years old. And of course, I thought I was the one, but... Uh, it was the best thing for me at the time, just like I said, not only to grow and mature as a person, but to physically, you know, I hadn't become a man yet. I was, you know, I was just a, a young man, but uh, I had some, some physical growing to do and some, some mental growing to do is, is, is to grow up and mature and, and to be out there on my own. And by the time my junior year came, I was ready to go, and, and I got through the minor leagues real quick. Before we get into the big league career, i got to get one USC story in here that actually made me laugh out loud when I was reading the book. Terrific story you tell about how your coach, uh, Mike Gillespie, is uh, re- requesting that you bunt uh, with a couple of men on base from the cleanup spot. And uh, you, you had a philosophical uh, disagreement with that. Could you go into that story? Because I thought that one was priceless. Well, I think I think what happened was he gave me the ball. I uh, swung away. I ended up getting a base hit and um, pulled me aside kind of after the game. And he said, "What's what's the deal with the bump sign?" I said, "I don't bunt." What are you talking about? I'm hitting fourth. Four hole hitters don't bunt. Once again, naive. I've got, I've got no clue. You know, nowadays it's like no. <laughs> whether you agree with your coach or your manager or not, he's the boss, and you do what he says. But I, I mean, this was me when I was 18 years old. And um, 
he said something to the effect of, um, why don't you go home and ask your father? And I said something to the effect, <laughs> I don't know. It's like, my, my dad couldn't hit. <laughs> why am I going to ask him? You know, stuff like that. Here I am, a freshman in college, talking about my dad. He played in the big league at that point about 17 years. And, uh, <laughs> I mean that that was how I was and and years later I just looked back and I just cracked up like I really thought you know and that's why as I became a veteran in the big leagues you know yeah I'd, I'd see this young kid up and coming prospect or you know future stud and and the older guys used to you know kind of a hazing process when you come through I got hazed big time but and it didn't bother me at all. But I, I used to see these guys getting on these guys all the time. You know, oh, that kid's cocky. He's this and that. As long as they were very respectful, which they always were, uh, to myself and to the veteran players, and respected the game, I love these kids that came in thinking they're the greatest thing in the world because that's what I was, what I was thinking. And I just think I don't need to humble them. I don't need to cut their suits in half. I don't need to beat them down. Greg Maddox is pitching tonight. He'll do that for me, <laughs> and the you know, and the great right. ones. I want to see how you do when you get knocked down. How do you make that adjustment? How do you come back? So I always welcome that young, cocky kid coming up because no matter who you are and how good you are, this game will humble you. And the great ones get back up, make the adjustment, and go on and become great players. Um, but I know if you genuinely do feel that you're that confident in yourself you've got a chance and that's why i always left those kids alone you know the ones that are kind of tentative and i'm not so sure you know those are the guys i don't want in the bunker with me right i want that kid that thinks he's the greatest thing in the world because i believe if you think you're great you are great it strikes me and I, and I totally get where you're coming from because to do what you're doing you know you mentioned in the book that you know there, there's 750 of these jobs at any one time and let you know the minor leagues are full of guys that are people are still telling the stories of things that they did in high school and whatever they flame out in high a ball so to get to the level that you you have to be at to be a major leaguer and to excel in the major leagues i would think confidence is a prerequisite yeah and i think it's a lot of learning i, I really didn't go through any hard times um, through the minor leagues. I, like I said, I got there. My first full season was in double A. I was a double A all-star. I went to triple A. I was a triple A all-star and I got to the big leagues at the end of the triple A season. And I remember I got a, I remember this is a, this is funny. I mean, this is me. I get called up, um, Calgary, Canada. Cameras following me off the field. I can't sleep. I'm so wired. I mean, I'm going to the big leagues. I'm going to the big leagues and I'm going to Baltimore. I get on a flight the next day, and I'm in first class. It's the first time I've ever been in first class. And I look, you know, I'm 21 years old. I look like I'm 15. And uh, I remember sitting next to the guy. I just look pumped. I got my chest pumped out, just wanting people to ask me where I'm going. <laughs> this guy goes, hey, son, you look awful young. What are you, where are you headed? <clears throat> I said, I'm going to Baltimore. So, oh, yeah, what do you got to do there? I said, I'm playing against the Orioles tonight. And he goes, come on. I said, I'm you watch me. I said, you want to go to the game? <laughs> he said, I can't go to the game tonight. I said, I'll tell you what, you watch my first bet. You going to get a hit? I said, I don't know, but it's going to get hit hard somewhere. <laughs> and I remember telling that guy that. Oh, that's fantastic. I got to hit my first at bat. And uh, I back to first. They throw the ball in. And I remember, oh, I can't think. Oh, 
I can't think who the first baseman was. Uh, Randy Milligan. Randy Milligan. <laughs> Randy said, congratulations, kid. And he goes, you got 2,999 to go. <laughs> and I remember being kind and nice and saying thank you very much. And I thought to myself, I'm going to get way more hits than that. <laughs> 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 I had no idea how, you know, how hard it was. And then two months later, I remember sitting in my locker slumped over, you know, talking to a a friend of mine that uh, had been in the big leagues and, you know, back and forth in the minor leagues at big leagues, looking at him going, the big leagues is really hard. <laughs> and he said, yeah, yeah, it is. And it's time for you to make an adjustment. And uh, that was the first time that I really had adversity where uh, I was failing. I mean, I was hitting 197 in my first 130 big league bats. I just thought I've got to do something about this. I got to go home this off season and work on some things. This isn't like AAA, and uh, that was the first time that I had some adversity. And I came back and I made the adjustment. And, um, you know, and I had several years in my career. You know, you look at my bubblegum card; it's kind of weird. I had some real, you know, real great years, some real good years, and some real tough years. Um, and it, and I think it makes you better, and and you just have to get off the mat. Go get them again, and let's make the adjustment and go on. Well, you you had uh, an introduction really early on to uh, some of the hard realities of the big leagues because I think it was your fourth big league game. You get a hit off Roger Clemens, and he's he's not uh, he's not liking the way that you're up there uh, taking your hacks, and uh, you know he cracks you in the head with one. You know, being... I, I got him. I got him sixteen seven sixteen years later. <laughs> It took me 16 years after that to take him deep. Uh, no I finally kidding. got it. No kidding, but you got it. But that's uh, that. That's so. Uh, uh, you know, to me, when I think about this, I think, all right, how hard is it to hit major league pitching? And then I think to myself, how hard is it to hit major league pitching when you know that that guy out there, Roger Clemens, for instance, is willing to come in and dust you or or worse at, at any given moment? How much can fear creep in? to a hitter well, and affect I, I, I think I think you talk to any hitter worth his weight, uh, he doesn't worry one bit about that. I could care less if you throw at me. I'm not worried about that. I never have been. There's no fear whatsoever. Um, I knew Roger hit me on purpose that day. And, you know, I got hit in the head quite a few times. Never to the point where it was, you know, a real injury, thank goodness. Uh, usually a glancing blow. And just more, when you get hit by a pitch in the head, it's just more of a scary thought as you're laying in the dirt, usually, uh, more than actual pain. You know, it usually doesn't stick in your ear, ear hole and just drop straight down. It usually ricochets and it goes off the back fence. Right. It's more of a, it more shakes you up and it's scary than, than there is pain. And I remember there was no pain. It, it was just, I was in shock because the ball come, you know, 100 miles an hour in my head. And I remember laying in the dirt going, I know he hit me on purpose. Because you can tell as a hitter. I can tell if you're trying to hit me or if you just miss and something gets away from you. And uh, I said, I got to go get him. I got to go get him. And I didn't because I'm like, it's my third or fourth in the big leagues. I can't go get Roger already. And he's a horse, <laughs> so I remember I too, get, you know. I, said, well, I, I don't care. I don't <laughs> care who you are. Big ER or he fall. <laughs> and... <laughs> I got the I got the first and, and we were jawing each other all the way around the base. I ended up scoring. 
and he was right there on the line screaming. I mean, I'm screaming back at him, but uh, a little part of me scared to death. Like, I just got here. I'm fighting Roger Clemens, but I'm not going to back down. And uh, went into the dugout. And, you know, over the years, Roger and myself had a lot of real battles, you know. Um, it was just him testing the young kid that swung really hard and see how he was going to react. And, uh, you know, we talked years and years later at a, at a all-star game or something, and uh, that's all water under the bridge. But, yeah, that was one of my first memories. Let's talk about 2001, which I'm assuming is a topic that you're comfortable uh, talking about. The year that you had, I mean, you hit 331, 37 bombs, 141 RBIs. I mean, one of the greatest years really in the history of baseball for a second baseman. You you can put it up with Rogers Hornsby, Joe Morgan, and you name the second baseman uh, that season is going to rival anything anybody ever did. Your team also had a pretty good year. You guys won 116 games, and which I think is tied for the most wins uh, with the uh, 1908 Cubs. What's it like to be locked in like that for an entire season? Well, I've never seen anything like it. And uh, I had been on some really good teams before that team. Uh, 95 Reds, we were wired to wire. <clears throat> 94 Reds, we were wired to wire. 95, I think we were wired to wire. Uh, I was on the 1999 Braves. We won 100 and I forget how many, 104 games. And what a great collection of talent there. And I never believed in you know, everybody always wants to talk about chemistry and chemistry, and I just thought it was a bunch of crap. I said, no, get the best players and you steamroll people. Well, that year changed my mind about that. Because not only we had great players, don't get me wrong, um, we had all-stars and gold glovers and MVPs and batting champs on that team. Um, but I've never seen a team come together. I've never seen the aura that we had before. I've never witnessed that. And I think, uh, you know, that was, obviously that was the funnest year I've ever had. It, but this is right after Griffey leaves in 2000. I think A-Rod signed with Texas uh, the previous offseason. Randy Johnson had only been gone for a few years. So, yeah. like, all these big yeah. names were well, gone. They replaced us. And that, was the, that was the year Alex left, and they brought, that was the year I, myself and Ichiro came. And... Um, I, I can't even explain it to people. It's like, what was it like? I said, we would walk on the field, and there was something, there was an aura about us that you could you could feel the other team. They knew we were going to beat them. They just knew it. You could look in their eyes, and they just knew that we were going to beat them that night. And, um, I mean, it could be the seventh inning. We're down two. And you could feel it on the field, like, all right, when's it going to happen? And I'd never witnessed anything like that before. And it, it's something that, you know, I, I still to this day, I've scratched my head to this day, wonder how do we not win the whole thing that year? Um, one of the greatest regular season ever. And it's something in modern day, you'll never see it again. I mean, that's just once in a lifetime. Yeah, I agree um, with you. You know, but, but it's something I can't explain to people. I've been on a lot of great teams with a lot of good guys. I've never been on a team where everybody's comfortable with everybody else at a dinner table. If that makes sense. I mean, I've yeah. been on a lot of great teams where once a game starts, we're all pulling on the same end. But once a game ends, we pick our own friends. And on that particular team, um, all 25 guys at any given time uh, would be comfortable sitting at a dinner table with the other guys. And I'd never been on a team like that before. Uh, maybe because we were winning every night. So I guess everything <laughs> can be good when you're winning every night. You know, I remember them telling me, because I had Lou Pinella early in my career and we butted heads a lot. 
And then I came back and played for him as a veteran and ended up being my favorite manager ever. Um, but I remember them saying, you know, early in the year, or middle of the year, hey, Lou's really mellowed out in his older age. You know, he's really grown out. I said, anybody can be mellow when you're winning everything. <laughs> yeah. And, 116 uh, wins. Special, year. Yeah. special special guys and special year. And, you know, a bunch of us just had career years all at the same time. And it, it was a lot of fun. So t- tell me about Ichiro. That was his rookie year, and Ichiro mania. And, you know, he came over and just kind of took things by storm. But what I want to ask you is, he seems like a really interesting guy. The things that I've read about him, and, uh, you know, you even mentioned in the book that he had a pretty good sense of humor and knew a little more English than, than, than people realize. So here's what I'm going to ask. Can you, can you give me one of your best Ichiro stories? There's got to be some Ichiro stories. Oh yeah, I mean he's a funny guy. He's very, very charismatic, very charming when he wants to be. Uh, he's very funny, and yes, he knows a lot more English than he leads on. Um, opening day, we're walking, uh, we're taking the field at Safeco, and Ichiro walks up. I forget who the umpire was. One of my favorite umpires, and he was co- he was umping uh, first base that day. Each row takes his spot, runs out to right field. No, each row at that time, you're, like you said, he was a phenomenon. Everybody wanted to know, what's this each row guy? Who, who's this guy that has his first name on his back? And I think the umpire stopped him on his way out to his position just to say hi. You know, just kind of fun-loving. And him and each row had an exchange, and he walks over to me before the first pitch, and he goes, Boomy, what's up with each row? And he's laughing. I said, what do you mean? He goes, he walked by me and he said, "What's happening, home slice?" <laughs> I, said, I said, "That's Ichiro. That's how he is." Oh my God, that is uh, that's pretty classic. You know, a lot of the guys when he came over would teach him English, and he always wanted to learn. And they would teach him catchphrases and slang. That's what we taught him a lot of the time was the slang. And so, <laughs> like, what's happening, home slice? You just don't come over from Japan yeah. and know to say that. Yeah, he didn't bring that from so Japan. He always want, he always he always wanted to learn little cool funny sayings. So he could do it any time. I mean he could do you know, he'd dance and he'd sing and he you know, it, it, it's hey you know, they'd get hey Mooney, each row's got something for you today. I said, What do you got each? And he'd say something just out of left field and you just can't help but laugh. It's a game. I heard his profanity game was really strong. It is. He's good. <laughs> he, like I said, and, and by now I can only imagine what he knows. He's probably fluent. And one thing that I wanted to ask you that I thought was interesting in the book is you were talking about your transition into the minor leagues and, and going to the wood bat. Of course, you know, growing up as a kid, through high school, through through college, you're, you're, you're swinging an aluminum bat, and that's a, that's a pretty good transition uh, for anybody to make. I, is that underrated? Because you'll hear sometimes that well, some guys really struggle I, I think, with that more than others. I think... Uh... You know, nowadays with the kids coming up now, there's so many wood bat leagues and, and there's so much travel ball. And kids are playing a lot more. They're stronger. They're they're training year-round. You know, they're really taking care of them, their bodies. Uh, so I think that being said, today is different than it was when I was coming up or when my dad or grandpa. Or grandpa, actually. They were they were using wood bats from there in Little League. They didn't have a little. Yeah. But for my era... Um, you know, I'm, I've talked to a lot of guys that really struggled with the transition. I didn't struggle at all. It didn't bother me. I do remember my first game in the minor leagues kind of going, all right, give me the, the smallest, lightest bat in the, in the rack 
because I want it to feel like aluminum. And then uh, <clears throat> once you get past that initial fear, you realize that uh, a 30-ounce wood bat has no density to it, and it's almost like balsa wood. So you got to get something a little more. You know, you got to get a little more weight on there to, to have a chance. Those those 30-ounce, 29-ounce wood bat will just splinter in your hand. So uh, the transition for me was pretty quick. It was it was pretty easy. I, I remember I used that small bat for a couple weeks, and then I moved up, and, and it really wasn't that big of a deal. One thing that I thought was interesting is, uh, and, and I think this might surprise uh, a lot of people. You you said that. Uh, a, a big leaguer will go through something like 150 to 250 bats over the course of a season, which sounds like a lot, probably to well, to it, most it people. Depends. It depends. It depends. I mean, I was a, a bat crazy guy, so I, you know, I'd have a six six bats every week. I'd start the season with two or three dozen, then I'd have six bats in a week would just be in my locker. Just you know, I would constantly be rotating in. You know, I'd get a dozen bats and. Probably four of them were good, and then eight of them would go to the pile, mm. where I'd use those for batting practice or whatever. Um, and I'd collect as many good ones as I could. Is you know you get you get to that you know <clears throat> when you're a hitter at that level that your bat is pretty important and it's down to the ounce and the, where the weight is and then everything's got to be perfect and the sound coming off the bat and how it feels. So yeah, I, I mean you know the big league, especially nowadays. Um, you know, everything's at your disposal, and it's as many bats as you need. Just get it right and go play good. Um, so I, I think 150, that's a little high. Uh, but I think the typical big leaguer nowadays would get two, three dozen in spring training, a couple dozen to start the year, um, and then maybe two or three dozen throughout the year. I think that's more of an accurate number. Um now, assuming you don't crack or break one, like how long would you stick with a bat if you were going good? Would you stay with the same bat? If I had a bat, for... that, I really, if I had a bat that I really liked, I would go until that thing died. And I, I didn't crack many bats, especially later in my career. Um, you know, I might crack six, eight bats a year. Um, and I might use one bat for, if I get away with it, I'll use one bat for three weeks. You know, until if I get a real good one. I mean, I even had some that had airline cracks in them that I would tape up. Really? Because they were such a good piece of wood, yeah. And I would I would do that quite often. Um, once again, I think I was the exception. I was a little bit crazy when it came to bats. I mean, if, if I had a good bat, it's like I didn't want to let that thing go for anything. I, I was always envious of, of guys that would crack a bat, mid at bat, and just chuck it in and have the bat boy bring him anything out. It's like, no, if I crack my bat, I know I want that one that has the purple mark on it. That's my next one. If I don't have that exact one, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to freak out. You were talking about how you and Edgar Martinez would, would weigh these things, and, you know, a 32-ounce bat he, he, might not be he's the 30, one that got me. Yeah. Right. He, he, he got me into this. He screwed everything up. <laughs> I told Edgar, I said, you're part of my, you're part of my downfall. <laughs> I said, I used to not be this crazy, and we'd have them down. They had to be 31.7, or, you know, if it was early in the year, they needed to be 32.3, and if they weren't, then it, it became a psychological thing. Uh, it had to weigh, you know, it had to feel just right. Uh, and Edgar was crazy like that, too. If you're going to listen to somebody, you might as well be Edgar Martinez, you he's know. A pretty, he's a pretty yeah. good guy to listen to. I remember sometimes we just sit around weighing our bats going, what are we doing? Have we lost our minds? 
Yeah. Maybe time to find a hobby or, or something. Yeah. <laughs> no, let me ask you about what's going on in baseball today. I mean, obviously, you're a, a younger guy. You're not the, of the 70s generation. You certainly know uh, what the game was like, uh, you know, in that era, as well as the, the era that you played through yourself. What do you think about the game as it's being played today? What do you think about all the shifting, for instance? Hate it. <clears throat> Hate it. Um... You know, I'd really like to take, if I was managing a team, I would take every one of my left-handed guys, uh, especially the power guys, and we would bunt all spring training. Because all it takes is is a couple bunts down the third baseline and sacrifice bunts. These guys are so out of position, that's a base hit every single time. Why don't they do it? I think it about more? it all the time when I see these shows. it kills me. If Larry, Walker was, if Larry Walker was playing nowadays, he would make a mockery of the shift. Because he would lay it down in our generation any time. And, and it's, there's a time and a place for it. But if you're down two in the eighth and you're leading off the inning, I don't care how many homers you hit. Your homer doesn't matter. Get on base. So it drives me crazy that more guys don't bunt. I don't, if I were left-handed, I would bunt every single time. And, and that's the only way you get them to not shift on you. Right. Nobody likes to, to, people shifting into your strength. So how do you get them not to shift? You drop two or three bunts where they go, we can't shift on them anymore. I saw Chase Headley do that on opening day in Tampa, you know, and I mean, they couldn't have, they, you know, he, they, they couldn't have thrown him out if first base was 30 do further feet down, down the line. The third, yeah. Yeah, the third baseman won't even chase after it. He's basically handing you a hit. Yeah. You know, handing you a base runner at the beginning. So I don't like the shifts. Um, and I've always been a big time, really old school guy. Uh, as I get a little older and I see the game, uh, I'm coming around a little bit. Um, you know, I was never one to show emotion on the field as far as in a celebratory celebratory way. I don't think I ever smiled on the field, base hit, not or walk-off homer. Uh, I always never showed any emotion. I just thought you do your job, you go, and now you celebrate with your, with your teammates on the dugout in the clubhouse behind, you know, away from the cameras. But I, I never showed any emotion on the field, so I was never a big fan of that. The, the fist pumping and the pointing to the sky and all this, you know. These guys are getting base hits to right with two outs in the second inning in May, and we're having a celebration. Yeah, save it. And I'm going, you know? are you serious? But now, I, I, you know, I've come around a little bit because there's so many young uh, talented, athletic players in the game today. These kids are good, and they're young. And it seems like everybody's doing it. I mean, you could be, you know, I remember Dyson. He's a, he's a utility player for the Royals a couple of years ago in the postseason. He pinch runs, steals a base. He's doing the lawnmower. And I'm like, well, <laughs> he's an extra guy. You're lucky to have a uniform on. And, but I've come around a little bit. I just see the, the, the youth and the excitement. And I think it's, you know, they got energy about them. I mean, it's not, in our day, it was more go about your business, get it done. Nowadays, these guys are just, everybody's just laughing and smiling all the time. I think it's actually been a positive thing for the game. Because at the end of the day, we're entertainers. And I don't think you disrespect the game. You play the game as hard as you can from 7 to 10 every night. But I've come around a little bit. I don't think I would be that way if I was playing now. But I'm not as hard on the guys that are out there laughing, having a good time. Or, you know, I just that's just part of the part of the generation, and that's what they do. I think it's added a lot added a lot of excitement to the game. And you know, I think I think with the great postseason they had last year, I think baseball is actually uh, 
jumped over football and, and for the top spot again. Just with the excitement in the game right now and games thriving, you got people coming from all parts of the world. You know, it's really a world game now. It's not, you know, it's not, it's, you know, from the Latin to the Cuban to the Japanese to, you know, everybody's just getting involved and you're getting actually the best players in the world, not just the best players in the Dominican and the United States. You're getting the best players worldwide. So I think the game is really in a good spot. And, uh, you know, I could do with a few of the, <clears throat> the rule changes. I mean, they're kind of starting to drive me crazy and the instant replays. I disagree with a lot of them. I think the fair or foul home run. Uh, you know, to, that changes a game. I think that's legitimate. I think a bang bang play at first to end the game, whether it's a win or a loss, yes. But replaying all these silly double plays and, and tags at third base where you got to keep your glove on the guy's foot, I, I think it's dangerous and I don't think it's good for the game. You know, I think the fake to third move that they eliminated from the game is silly. You're trying to speed up the game. You fake the third, throw to first, what, once every three games, and it takes 20 seconds? Right. So why are we eliminating stuff like that? Well, like the intentional walk um, rule that they put in. I think that's silly. What? I think, I think it, anything that can affect the game, you can't change. Now, when you intentionally walk, 999 times out of 100, that pitcher's going to throw four balls, and he's going to go to first. Right. But two or three times a season, something crazy is going to happen, and it's going to affect the game and change the game. Anything that can change right. the game, I don't think you should eliminate. You still have to execute, very, right? Right. It's very rare that it's going to happen. But if you give them a chance, some pitcher somewhere once a month is going to throw one over the catcher's head and they're going to score and the game's going to be over and they lose. So I think anything that changes the game, you, you really can't mess with. The, the catcher, they were messing with the catcher and... It was such a tough rule. I felt bad for the umpires how to enforce, you know, am I in the base? I am I not? Do I have to slide? Where the games have been the same for, for years and years. Right. And, you know, if the catcher's in the way, he's got the ball, you got to knock the crap out of him. That's just the way it is. It always has As a second baseman, I'm interested to know your opinion on the so-called Chase Utley rule. It's just, and we can decipher as players what is a clean play and what is not a clean play. My job is to go in as hard as I can flip you on your on your butt and break up the double play. My job is not to hurt you and to, and to you know cross body block you and slide late into your knee. No, that's those are fighting times. Um, I don't know that I don't know. I I think if a guy has an illegal slide, I think he's, yeah, I think he should be thrown out of the game. I think if a guy comes in and, and spikes me in the knee, you know, mid air, I think he should be he should be ejected from the game because now you're messing with the guy's career. Um, but as long as you're coming in as hard as you can and you're doing it clean, I say that's part of the game and always has been. The book is Home Game, Big League Stories from My Life in Baseball's First Family, and he's Brett Boone. Everybody really should uh, should pick up this book and, and give it a read. You were telling me that there's an audible edition of it, too, where uh, where you actually narrate the book. Yep, toughest job I've ever done. <laughs> Listen to yourself. Let, let, try read for eighteen hours, and you'll throw up listening to yourself. You know, uh, most people don't like their own voice, so I can't stand it. And I'd have to sit there and listen, and they read it back to me, and it's like, oh, let's just get this over with. But yeah, it was interesting. And it's interesting reading everything. Like you're actually reading every word. You know, usually twice because you mess up the sentence. 
But uh, it was interesting. Yeah, but it's it's available uh, audio if you can stand my voice. But uh, no, it's I'm proud of the book. Like I said, it's an easy read, and it tells a lot of interesting stories. And, and the grandpa aspect's really big, and the stories that he tells are, are I think, really will be interesting to people. Definitely so. Three generations uh, of baseball as as observed and lived by the Boone family. It's good stuff. Uh, Brett, man, I appreciate you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing the stories from the book and your opinions on some of these other things. It was a real pleasure having you on. Okay, thank you very much. What a pleasure it was talking baseball with that guy. And I feel like all of us are missing the point. If we don't go up to at least one person in the next week and say, What's happening, Home Slice? Next week, I've got a really fun topic, as my guest will be author Joe Cox. His new book is called Almost Perfect, The Heartbreaking Pursuit of Pitching's Holy Grail. Joe is actually a dear friend of mine, going back for almost 20 years, and it's going to be a lot of fun to talk with him about the 16 pitchers in baseball history that missed a perfect game by one out. Some real brush with immortality stuff. Some of it fascinating, some of it a little bit heartbreaking, but all of it highly interesting. You know, Joe would tell you, I sang at his wedding uh, 15 years ago, but I promise to all of you out there that there won't be any singing next week. And you know what? Actually, I'll promise never to sing on this show. If you'll promise to never miss an episode of the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb. I'll see you next time.